morning, and uh, thank you for being here. Uh, we were just talking before the service uh, about how quickly Sundays roll around, how, how quickly they come back. And uh, I'm glad for that because this is, this is the best place I go. I mean, I love to bowl, and I can go over here to the bowling alley and bowl. Uh, but I don't have fellowship like that at the bowling alley. This is the only place where I go where I really feel like I'm with family. And that's because of one who is our brother in heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for being here. We have read the passage and uh, this morning it's... uh, its impact is still seen. We, t- we talked last week about uh, Jesus laying down his life for the sheep and what that meant, his, his very uh, self. We see Jesus has declared himself to be the good shepherd. And in saying that, the underlying uh, emphasis of this passage is the care that Jesus has for his sheep. He is the good shepherd. He is the shepherd, the good one. His character is such that he cannot and will not ever do harm to his sheep. Even the worst things that we can think of in this life that can happen to us here on this earth are still in the care of our good shepherd. I mean, the worst thing that we think can happen is that we die. But if we die, we're instantly with him. And so death then, as bad as it may seem physically, is the best thing that we could have spiritually because then we will see him face to face. There is no greater care than the good shepherd giving his life for the sake of the sheep. And there's no greater care that one could give than to lay down their life for another person. Jesus said that. Greater love has no one than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. And then he said to his disciples, and he's saying to us, You are my friends, if you do what I command you. That's the proof. The proof of of knowing Him is that we follow Him. That we are obedient to Him as much as is possible for us to be. And even then, our obedience is not perfect. So Jesus came to give His life and He did that. And He did it willingly so that He could take our place as our substitute on the cross. The cross was what we deserved. Death was what we deserved. Punishment is what we deserved. And the fact that we will not be punished is all of grace. All of grace. Jesus literally exchanged his soul. Now think about this for a moment. 
He exchanged his soul for yours. Isaiah 53, verse 12. Therefore, God says, I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. Why? Why can he be given all of this and share it with so many others? Here's the reason. Because he poured out his soul to death. His soul. His soul was given up to death. He, it, it was his willingness to do that without restraint. He, the entirety of his person, his entire life was sacrificed in our place, both body and soul. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. That's us. Now this is the first and most important thing that the shepherd does in benefit for the sheep. Nothing else, nothing else would give them rest and assurance if it were not for the fact that he laid down his life so that he could take it up again. See, there's the real victory. The victory, of course, is in his death because it was substitutionary. But if he died and remained dead, that would not give life to anyone. It's that he rose again. It's that he lived again. And by his own power. We'll see that as we travel through the rest of verse of chapter 10. So that's the most important thing. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 19, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. pitied. The, the old King James translation says we are the most miserable. Think of it. People who hope in everything under the sun in this life, are they not to be pitied? And yet, if we claimed Christ and did not know that He died in our place and rose again for our justification, we would be in that group too. The hired hands that he mentions in verse 12, um, <clears throat> the hired hands symbol, are symbols of the Pharisees and false teachers that are nothing more than spiritual mercenaries placed in ministry, but they're only for the money and the power. Uh, by the way, they're still, they're still going on today. They're still here. And that's what they're there for. Money and power. Money and prestige. Money and notoriety. Money, money, money. I've heard them say it. I watched Creflo, Creflo Dollar dance on the money as people brought it and laid it up on the steps of the platform at his church. He danced through it, crying, money, money. 
You talk about idolatry. These people do not care for the people under their watch. They neither love the souls of men nor the truth of God's word. Paul, writing to Titus, says this about them. There are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by their teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Peter says this of them. In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. I would not want to be in the place of one of those. Jesus, as the good shepherd, loves his sheep. This is the second benefit. Uh, to the sheep, if you'll notice, in verse uh, 14, he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. So, here's the second benefit of the sheep. Not only is that Christ lays down his life, his very soul, for the sheep to redeem them, but secondly, He lays down his life so that he knows the sheep. He loves the sheep. Now, how can we connect knowing and loving in that passage? He says in verse 14 that he knows his own, those who belong to him, and his own know him. The word used to describe this love relationship that Jesus has with his sheep is the word know. It has with it the relationship of a husband and wife in their intimacy that they enjoy in their relationship. Now turn with me back to Genesis Genesis chapter 4, and I, I, want to, I want to bring this forward so that we truly understand what it means when Jesus says, I know my sheep and they know me. Now, last week I said that the sheep are named by different names. They're called the people of the way. They're called the church. They're called the sheep of his pasture. All those terms are synonymous with those whom Jesus came to save. Now notice Genesis chapter 4 verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, their firstborn. Verse 17 of that chapter. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. Chapter 4, verse 25. Adam knew his wife again, 
And she bore a son and called his name Seth. Genesis chapter 19, verse 8. Now we'll bring this about from another avenue. You're still using the same word that Jesus used in John chapter 10. Look at verse 8, Genesis 19, 8. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. What does that mean? It means they were virgins. Genesis 24, verse 16. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. I think you get the idea. It is speaking of that intimate relationship between a husband and his wife. This word known could be translated had relations with. Adam had relations with Eve, his wife, and she bore a son. In Amos chapter 3, you don't need to turn there. In Amos chapter 3 verse 2, God said to Israel, You only have I known, same word, Known of all the families of the earth. Now, was God aware of other families of the earth? Is he saying, I don't know about any other families? Certainly not. He's omniscient. He's talking about that unique and intimate relationship that he had with only Israel, the seed of Abraham. Matthew records that Joseph did not know Mary until after Jesus was born. So to know has the connotation of love in a marriage relationship. And it goes, that intimacy certainly goes beyond the marriage bed. It is an intimacy that is sacrificing, self-sacrificing. Now, no one has that kind of relationship with a stranger, as he mentions in verse 5. And no one, no one speaks of or wants an in, that kind of intimate relationship with thieves and robbers, as in verse 1. And no one builds an intimate relationship with those who are only interested in themselves and making money. Unless they themselves are that way, as he says in verse 12 and 13. The beauty of this relationship, when Jesus says, I know my own, I have this intimate relationship with my own, and they have this intimate relationship with me. Is there any closer relationship than the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, living inside our bodies and our souls? There's nothing more intimate than that. He is with us everywhere we go. He's there anytime. We can speak to Him at any moment, no matter where we are. There's an intimacy. He knows us and we know Him. We are His bride. He is our heavenly husband. 
The beauty of this relationship is that it does not hinge on our ability to love Him, but rather it hinges on His faithfulness and His ability to love us. John speaks of this. Turn to 1 John chapter 4. Just a few pages before the revelation, this is what John says. Chapter 4, verse 10, 16, and 19. Notice what he says here. In this is love. What is it, John? What is this love? Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation of For our sins. Now what is that propitiation? Propitiation is God's mercy looking down on us and pardoning us. And through that pardon in Christ, inviting us in, bringing us in to Himself. He is satisfied with what Christ did on the cross in our place. And thereby, He welcomes us. We have an intimacy with Him because of Christ. Verse 16, So we have come to know, John says, and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. Verse 19 says, We love Because He first loved us. You see, it's not you. You didn't initiate this. You didn't bring yourself into the love of God. You were were running as fast as you could, and I was too, as fast as I could, away from God. Oh, I thought I was okay. If you'd have asked me, are you a Christian? I would have said yes, but it was only because my mama made me go to church every week. I didn't have an intimate relationship with, with God. But he he went he followed me everywhere I went. I couldn't get away from him. Everywhere I went, there was somebody or something that was reminding me of my lost condition. Until finally one day. He grabbed hold of me and drew me to himself and I couldn't get away. I'm so glad he did. Because had he not done that, I would have kept running and I would have run for the rest of my life until I died. It is not your love for him that makes you a Christian. It is his love for you that makes you a Christian. He knew and loved us before Creation. You know what that says? That says there wasn't anything in you that He saw to make Him love you. In fact, everything He saw in you, He hated because it was all sin. See, that's really the only freedom people have before salvation. They are free only to sin. That's all. But Christ knew us and He loved us before we were born. In the eternal decree of God before time, Jesus, the eternal Son, loved us. 
He knew us and loved us just like He loved His Heavenly Father. In other words, if we want to phrase it differently, the way Jesus loves us is the same way that He loves the Father, and the same way the Father loves Jesus is the same way He loves us. There is in verse 15 a parallel arrangement called a chiasmus. It is a parallel arrangement to emphasize the truth of this. We see it in verses 14 and 15. He says, I know my own, my own know me. My father knows me and I know my father. So if you put these two together, they really explain verse 11 where he says, I lay down my life for the sheep. Why does he do that? Because he knows the sheep, and the sheep know him, and the Father knows him, and he knows the Father. So in verse 11, when he says, I lay down my life for the sheep, that's in the third person. He's speaking of himself in the third person. But in verse 15... He speaks in the first person. So in knowing the sheep and the father with the same love shows that he is the giver of that love. He's the one giving out the love to his sheep and to his father. It proceeds from him to us and the father. The sheep and the father both love him. So he becomes the object or the receiver of that love. These two are entwined together. So that the person that Jesus loves, the Father loves. And because the Father loves the Son, he loves all of those that come through the Son to him. It's a, it's a love triangle of heavenly dimension. MacArthur writes, the simple truth here is that Jesus in love knows his own and they love and they in love know him and the Father in love knows Jesus and he in love knows the Father and believers are caught up in this deep and intimate affection that is shared between God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. See, Jesus and the Father loved each other from the very beginning back in eternity past when there was nothing but God. They loved each other with this perfect love. And in time and in creation... God made a people that could be drawn into that love. And they're called His sheep, His church, His people, His bride, His his wife. In this life, I think we could safely say that we could never love to the same degree or have the same divine depth of fellowship as the Son has with the Father. Not here. But the pattern of this love and relationship is set forth between Jesus and the people that are His as a reflection of the love that exists between the Father and the Son. You see, we reflect that love 
We reflect it first to each other. I was watching this morning, as I do every week. People loving one another here. Why do we do that? Because God's love has been shed abroad in our hearts. We love the brothers. Our brothers and sisters in Christ. We love each other. There's nothing sinful involved in it. It's not something that we're trying to, to take for ourselves. It's a, it's a giving of one ourselves to one another. And using the gifts that God has given us to encourage one another and build each other up so that we can walk in this world and make much of Christ and show a difference from the rest of the world. William Hendrickson writes, Jesus acknowledges His own as His true disciples. They acknowledge Him as their Lord. Nothing could be more wonderful. Thus also the Father acknowledges the Son, and the Son acknowledges the Father. It's all entwined together. Yesterday, Mary and I uh, went to uh, Steve and Amy Conklin's wedding, and I, I married them. Steve and Amy sit back here on this back row. Uh, he's got a beard. You probably would know him if you saw his face. They got married yesterday. And we talked about that, that love that a husband has for his wife. This is exactly what Jesus is talking about here. That intimate knowledge and care and love that they show to one another. The good shepherd dies for the benefit of his sheep. The good shepherd knows with an intimate, everlasting love his sheep. And third, here's the third thing that the shepherd does for the benefit of the sheep. He unites his sheep into one fold. Notice verse 16. He says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Wow, I'm looking forward to that day. When all of the, when all of the other sheep are added to the fold, and there's one fold, and Jesus is the only shepherd. There was only one fold of sheep at this particular time, and that fold was the fold of Israel, the Jews. In fact, Jesus came ministering primarily to the Jew. Now, there were a few Gentiles saved along the way, but mostly the gospel was to start with and go to the Jew first. This is exactly what Paul says in Romans 1, that it came to the Jew first. And then to the Gentiles. Listen to what Matthew 10 says. Jesus said these 12. It says these 12 Jesus sent out. And this is what he said. Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. See, he came for the Jew first. 
Matthew 15, verse 24. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Sounds rather uh, prejudiced, doesn't it? Romans 15, verse 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, to the Jew, to show God's truthfulness in order to conform or confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. That's why he came. He, it was promised, it was prophesied that he would come for the seed of Abraham. But it was also promised that in Abraham, Abraham's seed, that all the nations of the world would be blessed. So not all of his sheep belong to the fold of Israel. Israel is a fold of his own. But there were others that had to be found throughout the world and brought in. God had promised he would do that. He promised it in Ezekiel 34. Listen to what he says. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and seek them out. You want to know the real, the real force behind missions? The real force behind missions is that God has sheep all over the globe and He searches for them with the gospel. That's missions. People who haven't heard. People who don't know the God of heaven. God seeks them out with His gospel and He brings them into His fold. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among other uh, when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples, that is from the nations, and gather them from the countries. And I will bring them into their own land and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravens and in all the inhabited places of the country. So when Christ came, he came seeking and saving the lost. That was primarily to the Jew, but there were other sheep too. Sheep like the centurion whose son was desperately ill and next to death. Sheep like Cornelius, When that seeking is complete and God has brought all of his sheep from all over the world into one fold, then the end will come. This was decreed by the Father from all eternity. John speaks of it in chapter 6, verse 37, when Jesus said, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever... And that includes the Gentiles, the Gentile converts that come to me, I will never cast out. Verse 39 of that same chapter, 
This is the will of him who sent me that I should lose none or nothing of all, all, both Jew and Gentile, that he has given me. But I will raise them up on the last day. In chapter 17, verse 6, he says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Both Jew and Gentile. Yours they were, you gave them to me, I have kept, they have kept your word. Verse 24 of that same chapter. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me. See, it's his love. It's the Father's love for the Son that does all this. Before the foundation of the world. Now, why does he refer to two folds? Well, it has to do with the covenant made to Israel. God promised salvation to his people, Israel, starting with Abraham. This was the covenant that he made with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Listen to what he says. I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now we know that before, from before Abraham, there were people that God blessed. There were people that, that God chose. People that God redeemed, like Adam and Eve and and people like uh, Noah and his family. But when we come to Abraham, there is a different covenant that is made with Abraham that's different from the others prior to that. It is an unconditional covenant that he made that in all the families of the earth there would be blessings. That included the Gentiles. That covenant, God ratified in Genesis chapter 15 when he put Abraham into a deep sleep. And Abraham was groggy in his sleep and he looked. He had taken the heifer. He had taken the, the, the ram and he had taken the, the birds and he had divided the heifer and the ram in a ditch. And the blood flowed into the ditch. This was the way covenants were made. <clears throat> An animal would be slain. Half of it would be placed on one side of the ditch. And on the other, the blood would run to the center. And the two people making the covenant would walk back and forth in the blood, which ratified the covenant. But in this case, God made Abraham to become so sleepy that he could not actually walk in the ditch himself. And Abraham looked, and there was a burning fire walking back and forth between the animals in the ditch. That was God ratifying the covenant that he had made with Abraham, or the promise that he had made with Abraham in chapter 12. That in him, his seed, all the families of the earth would be blessed. Jesus comes from that seed. 
The sign of that covenant was circumcision. David said in Psalm 147, verses 19 and 20, he showed, us his, he showed his word to Jacob, his statutes and judgments unto Israel. He hath not dealt so with any nation. And as for his judgments, they have not known them. See, the other nations that before this didn't know God's judgments. Just Israel. But when Jesus came as the seed of Abraham... He opened the way so that the nations now around the world could come into the promises that were given to Abraham. It was the covenant. God would bless the seed of Abraham with salvation through his son that they had nationally rejected. They had become deaf to the voice of Jehovah. And that rejection opened the way for the Gentiles to be brought in under the new covenant, which was ratified by the blood of Christ alone. Nobody else could enter into that covenant. It was, it's an unconditional covenant as well. We have nothing to do with the ratification of that. Christ alone ratified the new covenant with his own blood. Jesus said in John 5, verse 25, Truly, truly, I say to you, the hour is coming... And now is here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of Man and those who hear will live. Can you remember when you heard it? Can you remember when you were alerted to the eternal danger you were in because of your own sin and you heard the gospel and responded to it? Isaiah 42, verse 6, I will give you as a covenant for the people and as a light for the nation, speaking of Christ, speaking of God's Messiah. Isaiah 49, verse 6, he says, I will make you as a light to the nations and my salvation, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. How did he do that? Through the preaching of the gospel. And people take that gospel and they go into places where it hasn't been before, into the deepest part of the swamp jungle in Papua, and people hear it and they respond to it because God is at work in His gospel. For centuries, the Jews hated the Gentiles, and the Gentiles, vice versa, hated the Jews. The Jews became arrogant, and so ingrained was that hatred that even saved Jews had a difficult time accepting that God would shower His grace upon Gentiles who were considered nothing more than mangy dogs. You remember Caiaphas, the high priest, and his unrecognized prophecy? From John 11, we'll get to it. I'll just read it for you now. He said, You do not understand that it is better, do you not understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people not that the, and not that the whole nation should perish? He did not say this of his own accord. 
But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nations. And he was an unbeliever. Verse 52, and not for that nation only, but for also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. That's the Gentiles. That's you and me. I don't think there's any converted Jews in our church that I know of. We're all Gentiles. Now let's look at one more passage that speaks of the work of God in keeping His promise that He made to Abraham. Paul speaks of it, of the Gentiles in the church at Ephesus. And in that church, there was, a, there was among believers a great, uh, what can you say, not hatred, but animosity, prejudice between Jew and Gentile. He reminds them of their former state before they knew Christ. And he reminds them of the grace that they had received through God's grace to salvation. That their whole life was been predestined by God. That they should live according to the good works that God spoke to them. And notice what comes right after that. Ephesians chapter 2. Turn with me. I want you to look at it. Now, in chapter 1, he's reminded them of all the great things, the blessings in heavenly places that Christ has given to us. Through Christ, it all came to us. And now, this is what he says, starting in verse 11. Therefore, you know what therefore means? Look back. Look back at what I've said to you prior to this, that God has created you in Christ Jesus for good works that He would bring forth for His glory among His people. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what, God, by what is called the circumcision. In other words, the Jews called them uncircumcised dogs. Nothing more, no use They were useless people, uncircumcised. By what is called circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you at that time were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and the strangers, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off. What does he mean, far off? Is he talking about spread out in distance? We know that the Gentiles are scattered around the world. All God's sheep, they've been scattered around the world. And he sends the gospel to them. Is that what he's talking about? No, he is not talking about them being far off as in distance. He's talking about them being far off from the covenant. They're not a part of the covenant that God made with Abraham. You who were far off have been brought near. How? By the blood of Christ. You've been brought into a new covenant that God made with His Son. 
For he himself is our peace, who has made us both and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. There should be no hostility between brothers in Christ. I don't care where you're from. I don't care what your nationality is. I don't care what your ethnic background is. I don't care what your, your status is. There should be no hostility between brothers in Christ. We are commanded to love one another. We must love one another. And if you can't love one another, you can't love God. How did he do that? Verse 15. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two. And so making peace. (laughs) That's where peace resides. It's in our it's in our attitudes towards one another. We're going we're gonna to rub each other wrong. We're going to offend one another. But it's called confession and forgiveness. If you can't forgive people, you won't be forgiven by God. And He came, verse 17... And preached peace to you who were far off from the covenant. And peace to those who were near. That's the Jew. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then we are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple to the Lord. In Him you also are being built up into a dwelling place by God's Spirit. Don't you see? This is the benefit that Christ gives to those who are His sheep when He brings them into one fold. Part of the good works was to recognize that there is one sheepfold and to welcome all those whom God had brought into it, no matter what their race was, no matter what their creed is, no matter what their nationality was. They are now brothers and sisters in Christ, sheep of the same shepherd, together in the same fold, and they're to be accepted as such. You want to know what a happy and spiritually blessed church is? It's a church that follows their shepherd and endeavors to live like he did. Jesus is bringing people into his fold, both Jew and Gentile. The day is coming. The day is coming. We may not see it. Some of you might. Because you're young enough, but the day is coming in which God will open the eyes of Israel nationally and they will see Jesus, the one whom they crucified, the one whom they slew on the cross, and they will believe in him and they will be added into this one fold as well. And when that trumpet sounds, 
And all of the saints tuned into that frequency will be changed and caught up in the air to meet the Lord and will see Him face to face all together. There will be one fold and one shepherd. What benefit we have in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for this day and for the opportunity of this Lord's Day to come and worship. We look forward to this day every week. It is the best place that we know. It's a safe place. A place where we're loved. A place where we're together and one in Christ. It is a place, even though our personalities are different and our desires and likes are different, we are one in Christ. And in Him, we have fellowship. And so I pray, Lord, that You would bless us today, that You would encourage us, that You would build us up in the faith most holy, and that You would cause that like precious faith to be seen by others, the love that we have from our shepherd and our love for Him. And truly, our love is in Christ, who loved us first, and that's why we love Him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.